that's really where the beauty is, is you have to get through those layers of suffering. And, and just on the other side of that is all of the meaning and all of the beauty and all of the connectedness. And I feel like this time that we're all occupying is a time to really reflect on that so that this, there is meaning in this and it's not wasted time. It's easy to talk about the successes, but what doesn't get talked about enough is the struggle. My name is Eric Weinmayer. I've gotten the chance to ascend Mount Everest, to climb the tallest mountain in every continent, to kayak the Grand Canyon, and I happen to be blind. It's been a struggle to live what I call a no barriers life, to define it, to push the parameters of what it means. And part of the equation is diving into the learning process and trying to illuminate the universal elements that exist along the way. And that unexplored terrain between those dark places we find ourselves in and the summit exists a map. That map, that way forward, is what we call no barriers. Today's conversation with Dr. Rana Oddish is about learning to listen and find empathy with people who struggle, which is something we all need to do better in today's world. Dr. Oddish worked at the front lines of treating COVID-19 patients in Detroit, Michigan, and is the author of an LA Times best-selling book called In Shock, a memoir based on her own critical illness. She currently serves as the director of the Pulmonary Hypertension Program at Henry Ford Hospital and the medical director of the care experience for the Henry Ford Health System. She was named the hospital's Critical Care Teacher of the Year in 2016, the National Compassionate Caregiver of the Year by the Schwartz Center, as well as the Physician of the Year by Press Ganey in 2017. Enjoy the conversation. Welcome to another installment of our weekly No Barriers podcast series, where we explore this extraordinary moment in our lives and touch on the ways that we can all continue to believe that what's within us is stronger than what's in our way. Special thanks to Prudential and Wells Fargo for their generous support of this podcast series. This is your co-host, Dave Sherna, and I'm honored to be joined by guest host today, Tom Lillig, who's longtime board president of No Barriers and author of the book, What's Within You, Your Roadmap to Living Life with No Barriers. Tom, welcome to the show. Excited to be here. Thanks, Dave. Well, Rena, I loved your book, and I've been inspired by reading some of the recent articles about you. But instead of going through the past right now, I just wanted to ask you, how are you doing? How are you doing in the midst of this, this pandemic? And you know, being on the front lines, as being a leader on the front lines, how are you feeling? That's such a generous question. Thank you. The truth is it varies day to day and minute to minute. Uh, There have been some really hard days in Detroit. We've been struck unreasonably hard. um, And our hospital in particular has seen quite a few patients. And there have been hard days. In this moment, I'm feeling centered and happy and, you know, really invigorated by the work, really challenged by it, but in an okay place emotionally. Well, that's, that's good to know where you're at right now. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about how the hospital is doing overall, what you're seeing in the other physicians, and how might you be um, assisting them and trying to help to, to better serve the hospital? So 
With my role, it's sort of a split role. I'm a critical care physician, but I also direct care experience for our health system. And I'm fortunate in that the care experience aspect of my job encompasses the care of everyone, not just the care of our patients, but of our nurses and physicians and ancillary staff. And so during this pandemic, you know, we started getting cases here in Detroit around March 10th. And everything was evolving so rapidly, just things changing almost hour by hour. And we needed each other so much right away. We needed to talk and communicate and and really crowdsource solutions and support each other. And so I got in the habit really of just going physically to every ICU that was caring for COVID patients and rounding on my teammates when I wasn't rounding on patients and, you know, checking in, asking what worries you the most today? What is the next way you're worried we're going to harm a patient? What do you not have enough of to protect yourself? How's your family? And that sort of evolved into a more formalized daily presence in those units so that we could um, understand the needs as they shifted. We've gone from having one ICU of 16 beds of COVID patients to surging. At one point, we had almost 150 ICU patients alone with nearly 400 COVID patients just within one hospital in our system. The the immense emotional toll of taking care of these patients who are isolated from family, who are, you know, without contact except from the medical team. I think we all saw the risks right away of of depersonalization and, and delirium and disconnection and and we set about finding solutions and and hopefully mitigating some of that hardship for our, our patients and our staff. That's a that's a great point, you know, this whole notion of the the disconnection. And I know that you seem to make the rounds not just for the patients but also for the physicians. Can you tell me about some of the solutions that you were able to find that were effective for either physicians or patients? Yeah, it's it's been a lot. I'm actually amazed at what our hospital has devised in just 8 weeks. So the very first thing we knew we needed to do was to leverage technology to help with these connections. And so the care experience side got iPads and iPhones for the unit so that not only the patients could communicate if they were able to with their families, but also so that the physicians and nurses who were caring for these patients were having conversations with family eye to eye. What was actually so distressing for our care providers was that, you know, they were engaging with families who the last they saw of their loved one, they were being dropped off at the ER pretty much well, you know, just with an upper respiratory infection, maybe a fever. And then the news was getting worse and worse. And it was so abstract for our families. They just, they couldn't understand sometimes 
how it had gone so far so quickly. So being able to bring the iPad into the room, the way we would bring a family member into the room with real, you know, gentleness and describing what they're going to see and, and talking about either the clinical improvement or the deterioration and what was possible and what was no longer possible. It softened those conversations for all of us in a way that really prevented some of the moral distress that I think people were feeling. So that was one really large intervention, just distributing those 300 devices throughout our ICUs. There, um, you probably saw in the Ebola crisis, people would wear pictures of themselves on their personal protective equipment. We also instituted that because, you know, with masks, you're really unable to communicate more than eyes and it can feel very disconnecting. So the, the nurses have a show me your smile, big picture of themselves. Um, we beam in well wishes from the community. So children draw pictures and we put them on the TVs so that there's a link between the community and our patients. Those sorts of interventions have been really meaningful for us. That's great. Yeah, it sounds ama amazing. These are like somewhat universal things that we probably all could do a little bit more of. I love how you started by saying how you were feeling in this moment, because I think all of us are struggling with the variations and how we're feeling uh, across the moments. And, and even just those questions you ask your employees, what are you worrying about? What are you not having enough of? Um, these are things that I think are really practical applications to all of our lives, including those and especially those who are in these very trying times in, in the hospitals. Um, so thank you for sharing those. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I love some of those solutions that you came up with, and I hope you don't mind if I dive into a little bit more of the details. No, of course. How were you able to secure those 300 some iPads or iPhones? How did that come about? You know, the, the system is beautiful, our health system, in the sense that when a need is articulated, they will find a way to fill it. So we didn't know if we were going to have to go through philanthropy or just we would be able to sort of absorb some of the iPads that IT had and they would reconfigure them for us with Skype and WebEx and FaceTime. And, um, but the IT department just kind of said, that's what you need, that's what we do, you know? That's what's beautiful, I think, about these asks that are coming directly from the people that are doing the work. So often in systems, we can take kind of a top-down approach and tell people what the solutions are going to be. But really, when we ask, what do you need, the, the bubbling up of these creative ideas, it serves everyone, and it's a lot easier to fulfill them. Yeah. Well, this is this is a great moment because this is where I'm going to throw down the gauntlet to Tim Cook, the CEO of Apple, and say, hey, this is a great idea that Rena had, but it should be instituted all across the country. You have the resources. You've got the inventory, Tim. Give that out. This is a time. We tweeted him. So. Oh, good. <laughs> you're, already, you're already knocking on the door. We tried. Okay. And then how, tell me about the, the, the process of collecting that artwork from children in the community. I would love to know yeah. about how you went about doing that. You know, some of it is, and a lot of this uh, has been literally community drop-offs. 
So it can be something as small as my son's third grade class who all wrote letters and, and they focused on the environmental services workers and the cafeteria staff who were keeping us fed. And then we have more substantial ones that sort of come in mass, usually organized by teachers, interestingly enough. And our hospital electronic system is called Sonify. That's what projects all of the information. And so our director of care experience, Vanessa Mona, worked with them to get them scanned in and transmitted. And that's something that every time I pass it, it puts a smile on my face, whether they're posted on patient doors for the healthcare workers or for the patients themselves, just letting them know that the whole community is rooting for them. We we started playing, you know, the the song Don't Stop Believing every time a patient was taken off mechanical ventilation and discharged because at the beginning it just didn't feel like we were having enough successes and we needed to share our successes with each other so that we could keep going and that was a really nice way of reminding everyone that what they were working towards was meaningful that that don't stop believing uh, music is great. Were you pumping it through the ICU or where did that, where did that? It goes through the intercom. So you hear it everywhere. <laughs> okay. Well, hopefully you heard that song over and over again. We have actually, it's, we've always had a little chime that plays when a new baby's born and we got used to that, you know, as sort of background noise for our lives. And this has become the new background noise. We've discharged over a thousand patients from COVID now. Wow. Um, so we've heard that song a lot. That's great. That's great. Now, Rena, is it like when you you mentioned how many beds were in the ICU? That seems massive. Like, what was the was the ICU set up to have that many beds already, or did you shift everything around? And there was a lot of shifting. Yeah, you're quite right. Our regular medical ICU can handle sixty eight medical ICU patients. But at the time that this all started, all of the hospital leadership had the foresight to see that not only were we going to have to conserve PPE by canceling some non-time sensitive procedures and surgeries, but we'd have to make space as well. And so we took over the surgical ICU, we took over the cardiac ICU. So these were ICUs but they would typically be for patients who were post-surgery or post-cardiac intervention, and we just kept filling them. And what are you seeing in terms of, you, you mentioned you were at the, the height. Uh, are you tapering off of that? Yeah. Uh, and where, where are you now in kind of that evolution? Yeah, we probably peaked right towards the third week of April. It was it was done. We were past the peak, maybe second week. My sense of time is very distorted now. I think all of ours is. And it's steadily gone down each day. Our census has kind of contracted. So we still have about, I'd say, 80 patients that we're personally responsible for caring for that have COVID in our hospital, but nothing like it was at the peak. That's great. What I was wondering is you have a very powerful personal story as it relates yeah. to the, the, the care that you received and how it changed you. I was, well, 
I, I read your book and I know all the details or well, some of the details that you shared in the book. I was just wondering about when you think about this crisis that we're in right now, and you think about your own health crisis that you lived through in which you were on a ventilator, uh, I believe, and among, among many other procedures. How has that shaped your view of what we're all going through right now? Yeah, gosh, in so many ways. So my experience of a ventilator, you know, I, I hesitate to share it because I think it's almost so discordant with other people's experience that I don't want to overgeneralize, but I'll, I'll make it clear that this was just what it felt like for me when I was placed on the ventilator. It genuinely felt like a relief because I couldn't breathe. I could not breathe. And it was like someone had offloaded that task for me in the most beautiful, loving way. It was just like, oh, I don't have to worry about that anymore. So that wasn't distressing for me, and I didn't find it painful. What was difficult is that the drugs that they use to keep you sedated in this sort of ambient sleep state create a lot of delirium. And, you know, it's disorienting enough to know that you're on life support, to know if this machine doesn't do what it needs to do, that you'll die. But to then have aspects of your cognition not function well so that, you know, you see things that aren't there and you misperceive things that are, that's that's actually what I worry about as it relates to this crisis, because I think of all the things that kept me sane. And what kept me sane was if I looked to the right of me, my husband was sitting there and I knew who he was and I knew where we were and it reoriented me. And he was my voice when I couldn't speak and he could advocate for me and I felt safe. And what our patients have is, you know, people in spacesuits coming in that are decontextualized from everything and doing things to their body that often can't be clearly heard because we wear these respirators. And so you think about the lines and catheters that go into your body when you're that critically ill. It's a violation of your physical space. And as much as we can try to explain that, it's still coming through a muffled spacesuit with all those drugs. And there's no family because of contagion risk. And so I worry so much about what this experience of care is like for our patients and, and truly uh, what a post-ICU syndrome will look like for these patients how their recovery will look, even simple things that we've learned to do, you know, really aggressive physical therapy, even for people who are requiring mechanical ventilator support, we can't, we can't do that. We can't parade people out of the room, you know, it's isolation in the truest sense. And that's a form of torture, no matter how you slice it. So Rena, you were in that experience of isolation as well in your own personal journey. Um, can you tell us 
uh, for our listeners who aren't as familiar with your book and your story, just give us kind of a, a quick, obviously, if you want to go hear the full story, you should read In Shock, which is a phenomenal book, but um, we want to just give some context for our listeners. Uh, can you provide some of that context for us, Rena? Yeah, of course. I was a trainee. I was a pulmonary and critical care fellow. So I was essentially completing my medical training. It was actually the last day of my fellowship. And I was a good female trainee. So I had tried to time a pregnancy so it would coincide with my graduation. So I was seven months pregnant. And I had just this excruciating onset of abdominal pain that ended up being a tumor in my liver that I didn't know I had, had burst. And it was a tumor that was made up of arteries. So when it burst, my entire blood volume just sort of cascaded into my abdomen and I literally bled to death. And that was at my own hospital. That's where I was cared for. That first night in the operating room, I had my whole blood volume replaced multiple times over. Uh, my kidneys shut down. I had a stroke. I went on life support. I had one of those moments that people talk about where I felt like I had left my body. And, and that coincided with when, you know, in the operating room, I had actually arrested. And my recovery from that one night and losing the the pregnancy really took eight years i i had that first very protracted icu admission where i had to recover from all of my organ failure and learn to walk again and talk and um just sort of get back to some sense of my identity and then you know sort of year after year we'd find sequela of that initial night that needed to be tended to. So I had to have half my liver removed. We found another tumor. And through all of that, you know, the medical care was astoundingly good. I survived unsurvivable things. I was in awe of what my colleagues were able to do. I, I often said if, if I had received myself as an admission that night, I don't think I would have survived. I didn't have the clinical skills to keep myself alive. But what was shocking to me was all the aspects of care that we neglected. The, the way that we didn't see the value of attending to suffering, that we didn't understand how to help someone contextualize their patient experience in the, the context of their life story to make sense of their identity. There were horrible things that were sort of said in proximity to me. You know, she's been trying to die on me or when my kidneys failed, you know, it was just not compassionate. And I also saw what a hard time my physician colleagues had giving me bad news. We weren't trained in how to do that. And so all of those experiences really culminated in me deciding that when I went back to medicine, that that would be my focus, that I would learn myself how to have better conversations, that I would work to be better and more compassionate and present for my patients in a way that I hadn't been because I'd been so focused on the medicine that I had equated the medicine with healing when they're not at all the same. And uh, that's, that's sort of what has kept me 
connected to the work is that motivation. You know, at No Barriers, we work with people who come to us at moments of their life where they are in the midst of, you know, great trauma, whether it's a a veteran who has a recent disability or a family member that's been lost or kids coming from very tough situations. I, I find, even as the person who started No Barriers with Eric Weimer, I still find it hard to know how to have the right compassionate conversation when you're in those moments. Um, give give our listeners just some some perspective on how to do that well, because I think you know, we, we go through most of our, most of us, I would say, are lucky enough to go through most of our lives not regularly having those conversations. But almost all of us will have to be in a situation where we have to have it, whether it's um, a close friend losing a loved one or something terrible happening in someone's life, because that's the kind of stuff that you Nobiris know, talks about all the time. So how do we have those conversations better as human beings? I think especially for physicians, we're so used to being of use. And, and wanting to fix things. And when we, when we can't fix something and we have to just sit with suffering and attend to it, just truly create space for it to you know, stretch out and hold that space for somebody else, that can be uncomfortable because we've told ourselves a story that says that unless we're, we're treating someone, we're not useful. And the paradigm shift that we all had to make was one that says your presence is healing. And we all know that intrinsically, right? We, when we have a bad day and we talk to a friend, it's unlikely that our friend does something to fix the situation that we're sad about, but just by witnessing it and saying, you know, gosh, I can imagine that was such a hard day you know, I care about you and and I want to continue talking and I don't have the answers, but I want you to know that, you know, I'm here as much as you need to talk about this. I'll listen. Um, That's healing. And we don't value that enough. You know, we're so rushed and we're so achievement oriented and checklist oriented that just telling ourselves that our presence matters and our humanness matters. And the act of listening is in of itself a sacred witnessing act that other humans need is I think all we can do for each other. That's great and very powerful. And it seems to me that that when you, after you came back to work, it seems like with this as your focus or your mission moving forward, it seems like you we're seeking out opportunities to share that with your colleagues and share that with your hospital. Can you talk about a a little bit of that process of just not wanting it just to be for you, not wanting it just to be the toolkit for Rena, but this is a new paradigm shift for all. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I came out of my illness with not any answers, just a lot of questions. And so I sort of went searching And, you know, the way friends are and colleagues, if I found something valuable, I wanted other people to have it. And so pretty early on, a small group of people trained um, in this same communication skill technique and every person who did it really felt changed by it, truly felt 
this is the skill set I was missing as a physician. And I can't believe no one taught me this sooner because I have hurt people with my conversations and I've hurt myself not knowing how to do it well. And until it's built into our medical education, we're just going to have to seek it out ourselves. And so we trained to to teach it and we started teaching anyone who would let us really, which um, at the beginning was our palliative care department, as you might imagine, palliative care and hospice. They were very open to this and then pulmonary and critical care because I had a little bit of social capital there. I could say I just died and I think you guys need to do this thing with me. There was a lot of pity that I drew off of to carry the work forward. It was shameless. And it spread in a really organic way. It was just people found so much meaning in it. And it was more than just learning how to have these conversations, more than just learning how to say, you know, we're in a different place now. It was actually forming a community and a space for us to share what was hard about what we do. And the more we talked about it, the more we were able to talk about it. And the more we were able to support each other and coach each other through these hard conversations. So it became this fabric of who we are, which is why when this virus came, we were mad because everything we had built felt like it was being systematically dismantled by this virus that was isolating us from our patients, making it impossible to have patient and family-centered rounds, right? We, family wasn't there. Oftentimes, we couldn't speak to the patient because they came to us already on a ventilator. And I think something in our core identity as an organization really said, we still have to reconnect to our our core mission of doing this compassionately, regardless of what obstacles this virus puts in our way, we're going to figure out how to do this. It strikes me that that some of these very principles that you're talking about apply to how we all should be caring for each other in this moment. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, it's sort of, um, it's an inside joke among all of us who teach this, that it's actually made us better parents and better spouses too. Uh, because when you When you let yourself attend to the emotion that's there and don't try to have a cognitive response, things just kind of go better. People feel more heard and understood. So a lot of, I think, the the distress that people have right now are things that can't be solved, right? None of us has a solution for the most part for our, our neighbor's unemployment or food insecurity at scale or systemic entrenched racism. You know, these are... These are hard things that are happening. And what this shift has made available for me is an understanding that if I just approach situations with a genuine curiosity and a willingness to listen and really allow my views to be shaped by the people whose first person narratives are emerging in any story. You know, let the person who's experiencing it, let their story be what shapes your beliefs. I really believe we'll start to see our interconnectedness and our dependence on each other and the value of the people who've been all around us that were invisible to us, if we're honest, until a few weeks ago. 
And that all of that can mean that we come out of this stronger and more connected and more of a community than we went into it. If we allow ourselves to truly see. I love that beautiful picture you've painted. You, you, you mentioned that this is, you even called it, I think you called it, you know, the practicing the art of sacred listening. And, and as you describe the, the byproduct of that kind of listening, it does feel sacred. You know, it feels like something you would be inviting into your life, some, some extra sacred sacredness and, and acknowledging that with the beauty of what maybe hasn't been recognized before. So thank you for sharing that, Rena. I think that one of the, the gifts throughout your whole experience that I think you may have touched on in the book is this notion of you were grateful for having not suffered so much, but you were grateful for what you learned from the experience. Could you talk a little bit about what some of those gifts were that you took out of your, your experience? Yeah, it, it gave me so much more than it took away. Being that ill and really, you know, I'd gone into the hospital as a completely functional physician and I left the hospital months later in a wheelchair, unable to walk, having had that stroke that made my balance impossible. I was inarticulate. I was very slow. I'd lost a lot of words. I, I didn't recognize myself. And so I lost my identity completely. Everything I knew about myself was gone. And it was this beautiful opportunity to relook at what I truly was and, and what defined me and, and to rebuild from a place of purpose that maybe left behind some of the things that felt meaningful, but weren't going to nourish me. You know, the achievement oriented sort of type A medical student that we all were. I, I so clearly saw that what mattered was connection and what mattered was those, those small moments, a nurse, you know, taking time out of her shift to bathe me and having that human touch, someone reassuring me when they weren't sure that I could even hear them, but, but valuing my humanity enough in that moment, even though I look like a body in a bed to say, I'm going to communicate with this person like they're my sister. Those moments really opened up for me an awareness of what we value as a society and what's actually valuable. And, you know, I wouldn't give that up for anything. COVID aside, or maybe COVID related, you know, what it, when you kind of look at what you think is important to work on in the next five years, uh, given all that you've gone through and experience, where do you want to spend your time and energy? Uh, burning it down and starting over. I, I have been struck by how this crisis has really exposed so many of our fault lines as a society, as a healthcare system, as a country. I just, I can't imagine that we can see all of this and just go forth the way that we were. We have to do a better job of, of caring for each other and dismantling some of the hierarchies that are really keeping people down 
And I believe that we can do it if we all see the goal, you know, if we all see that we can all be better for it, if we we can work together. And I think these have been isolated in silos for a long time, these issues and, you know, having one voice would be really important. And this is such a historic time that we've all sustained the same trauma, right? There are such rare moments in history where an entire society experiences a trauma together. And the transformative power of that, of us all being able to have a frame shift at the same time and, and see things for what they were and what they weren't, I think if we capitalize on that, we could do anything. Yeah, I, I agree. To that note, we, we have a annual event we do at No Bears. It's now going to be virtual this year called the No Bears Summit. Do you or your team have any workshops that you do for others, whether they be other caregivers that are around this idea of sacred listening, compassionate conversations, or is it all internal to your own community at this point? Yeah, no, I've spent probably the last two years kind of taking this message out there and obviously not on planes anymore. But there's so much we can do with even, you know, looking at art together and and learning that if we we look closer, we see more and that if we take all of our perspectives at the same time, we see a broader picture. There's so many exercises that we can do that kind of scratch away the layers until we we learn these things in a really experiential way. It doesn't just have to be workshops around difficult conversations and end of life. These are um, really community building discoverable events. So we've talked quite a bit about your own story and the, the, the healthcare situation in general and your uh, work to improve that. One thing that I'd also like to touch on is you're a mom. Happy Mother's Day. Mm-hmm. Right? Thank you. When you think about your son, what do you want most for him in this world? You talked a little bit about this broad worldview of yeah. how we, we've gone through this transformative experience as a global society. We've suffered together. We're working through things together. As a mom, what is it that you want most for your son? So it's interesting because a lot of what I want for him, he can only have through suffering, right? So the kind of grit and resilience that I want him to develop doesn't come from having uh, a cushiony, happy life. It comes from suffering and, and being present for it. And so when this all started, one of the very first days that I I came home, I walked into the house and I always take off all my scrubs in our laundry room. I have a little decontamination area. And then I have to walk through the kitchen to get to the shower. And he was sitting at the kitchen table and I said hi to him and he pulled away. Like he was afraid of me. Like I was a threat because of this virus. And I almost immediately started crying because it was such a painful experience as a mom to have my kid physically recoil from me. And, you know, as this has progressed and I've, I've been away more, I've noticed him feeling worried 
about me going to the hospital, worried about me getting sick. He spent most of his childhood with me getting sick and going to the hospital. So that's not an abstract thing for him. He knows what it means. And then at the same time, allowing myself to let him have that. Because what he's also started doing is when I get home, he looks at me very closely and he says, your eyes are red or your eyes are puffy or your eyes don't look puffy today. So today was a bad day or today was a good day. And he's nine. So if he can look me in the eye when I come home to see truly how I am and be available for that, it feels like he's learning a kind of empathy that's needed in the world. And frankly, I'm willing to let him suffer a little bit to get that because I don't know another way. I think a lot of us as parents, well, I, I guess I should say I as a parent for certain, and I know Tom well enough to say, I think both of us would agree. One thing we really want to teach our kids is that resilience and grit. And part of what you have to do is, you know, let life come at them and not shelter them mm -hmm. from the things that might come. And part of what we hope to do with No Barriers, we do a lot of work with kids, is also um, introduce them and show them in experiential ways when we're allowed to, again, in, in person, the diverse fabric of life and the, the, the suffering that people do experience and the joy that they experience even in the midst of their suffering and give them some more diverse exposure to it. Because um, at least for our family growing up in middle class, Fort Collins, Colorado, you know, it's easy to go through life as a kid and not see that directly. And I think uh, that idea that we want to expose folks, expose our children to um, that at a young age, so they can learn to develop those skills is really important. Yeah, to let them be hurt. It, and I think if you can know what the end result of that is, that you're still creating a safe space for them, that when it gets really hard, you'll always be a soft place to land and they can they can talk about anything with you, but that it's okay for them to be hurt because it it will change them in a way that we need them to be changed. Yeah. Well, the one final thought or question that I wanted to pose to you is Dave has talked a little bit about our work and our philosophy. Um, you know, our motto is what's within you is stronger than what's in your way. And it's something that we try to live by and having a lot of life experiences that you've both really, really were close to death in and also ones where you have helped others who were close to death. I was wondering if you might offer up any reflection that you have on that mm. motto as it relates to your life experiences. Yeah. Uh, I, I love that motto. I'm going to need a lot of t-shirts with that motto. I think there is nothing that's more true to me than what's within you is stronger. Um, the, the funny thing is, I guess, we don't always believe that until we're really tasked with believing it. And our the depths of our wells, of our reserves, are so much greater than I think sometimes we allow ourselves to, to delve into. I think that first superficial layer of suffering can hurt, and so we don't always want to go deeper. And maybe we avoid some of the hard things because uh, we're afraid of where it will lead. But certainly what my experience has shown me 
through all of this, whether it was my own illness or, or attending to my patients and helping them to navigate their own critical illness is that that's really where the beauty is, is you have to get through those layers of suffering. And, and just on the other side of that is all of the meaning and all of the beauty and all of the connectedness. And I feel like this time that we're all occupying this kind of intermission before our life begins again is a time to really reflect on that you know what we've learned what we've found within us what maybe we wish we had more of within us that we can cultivate now going forward um so that this there is meaning in this and it's not wasted time well rana this has been a wonderful conversation can you tell our listeners where to go to learn more about you and your work um, so that they can kind of dive deeper. I have a Twitter problem. So you can find me on Twitter, Rena Oddish MD and RenaOddishMD.com for kind of where I am or where I'm speaking when that all starts again. Awesome. Well, another terrific conversation. Tom, I uh, just want to thank you for bringing Rena onto the show. I'd love for you to reflect on what we heard today and, and tease out something that you know stood out for you. Well, I think that for me, there's always this need to listen. There's always this need to be empathetic. There's always a need to find that space where you can understand where someone else is coming from, but not stop there. Then to take action, to do things that show that there is this connection, that show that there's understanding and ultimately to make life better for you and for the others. And that idea of kind of attending to suffering and how important that is, not just an end of life, as she was quick to point out, but all of us are suffering. Uh, as I know, Tom, the book you're working on is is partly about that. We all have suffering. It's not on the outside. Most of the time, we put a different facade on. And part of our role as human beings and part of our, our responsibility is to attend to other people's suffering well, if you are interested in the conversation and would like to see any of the details uh, that were mentioned herein, please go to nobarrierspodcast.com for our show notes. You can also download there our tip sheet where we take some of the key points that uh, Rena identified today and we apply them to our own lives. You know, download a page or two or something you could start with right away today. As always, we appreciate you listening. We appreciate you sharing this podcast with others. If you are interested in joining our virtual No Barriers Summit, we encourage you to do so. You can learn more at nobarriersusa.org. The production team behind this podcast includes senior producer Pauline Schaefer, executive producer Diedrich Jonk, sound design, editing, and mixing by Tyler Cotman, graphics by Sam Davis, and marketing support by Megan Lee and Carly Sandsmark. Special thanks to the Dan Ryan Band for our intro song, Guidance. And thanks to all of you for listening. We know that you've got a lot of choices about how you can spend your time, and we appreciate you spending it with us. If you enjoy this podcast, we encourage you to subscribe to it, share it, and give us a review. Show notes can be found at nobarrierspodcast.com. Bye.